Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Incoming transmission. You're listening to the Center Seat After Show, hosted by Brian Volkweiss, Mary Jo Tenuto, and John Tenuto. All drive systems and plasma relays are standing by. Five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Center Seat After Show. We have a very problematic guest today because he's one of these people that like, as you know, a lot of our guests, they come in and it's like, hey, you did X. Let's talk about X. The problem with Doug Drexler, spoiler alert, that's our guest. And you, it's probably not much of a spoiler alert because they probably I think they put the guest names in the in the description. But anyway, Doug, I mean, tell me if this is accurate, because I almost feel like I'm lying. You kind of do the first Star Trek store fanzine ever. Then pivot. You invent a brand new way of doing makeup. The first movie you do within reason wins an Oscar at a time when nobody gave a shit about TV. And you've just won the fucking Oscar. You start stalking a TV show that's using a business model that was beyond preposterous at the time to leave the feature world and start doing pretty much anything at Star Trek because they had already hired the makeup guy. So they can't even hire you to do the thing you won the Oscar for. So you do that for a couple of years. And then you're like, you know, I kind of got this. I kind of, I got the makeup. I got the Oscar. I've got some. And I've done it. Why? You know, you know, yeah. it's insane. I, like I said to you I'm once. Multiple hyphenate. That's what someone called. I think you are the, the unbeatable winner of the emperordom of hyphenates. I, I don't think this can be defeated. I don't think that anyone w- did more things on Star Trek than I did. Well, it's not, again, but in addition to that, you also won an Oscar for Dick Tracy. You also started the first fanzine, maybe of fanzines. It was a fanzine. It was, it was a, you know. It's a, a store. On the newsstands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then you like, hey, you know, I got this. Store, mo- too, the Federation Trading Yeah. Store. Right. So you're, you're 30 years ahead on that. Yeah. But then, okay. So you, you got the makeup down. You're like, I got this. I was part of the save Star Trek campaign back in 1967 when they were threatening to take the show off. And, uh, 
I was organizing kids to write letters. I, I was in newspaper articles. I was in Newsday with an article by Harvey Aronson. And uh, it was, for me, that was really pivotal because I, first I, I was a science fiction fan, which in 1965, 1966, that branded you as some kind of idiot. It was like reading comic books. My parents didn't want me reading comic books either, you know? If you hear this barking noise in the background, it's the parrot. There's nothing I can do about it. Hey, you listen, right? Come here. Come here. Say hello. Come on. Step up. Oh, oh my God. beautiful. That's so cool. How, how, how old? 40. Wow. Oh, my gosh. He's in, he's in Amazon. I think, how, how long have you had that, that beautiful bird? Don't tell him he's beautiful. He'll be insufferable. <laughs> I, uh, he's like 40 years old I, I had him since he's one year old so oh wow 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 Can you imagine that that's incredible you, you know I, you're in love with a kitty cat or a dog and they're not around that long but yeah. imagine you know if i actually i really want him to die before me <laughs> that's horrible but because i'm worried about him after i mean you know parrots they're not I don't recommend them for everybody, you know. Uh, they're very possessive of you and they want your attention all the time and they don't necessarily like, like he loves my wife and he's known her for 30 years now. But parrots can, they're, they're kind of feral, you know. I mean, if he gets scared, he might nip me. It's not mm. like if a truck bounces by, he's gonna nip me to warn me. You know, that's how they warned the parrot next to them. I'm the parrot next to them, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, so what's going to happen to him? I had a, uh, I had a disposable bird. My parents gave, when I was a little kid, they gave me a parakeet, right? So it was terrible. It was the day after Christmas. Swear to, swear to God, this is a true story. I was playing with, my, this is how long ago, was I playing with my $6 million man, an Oscar Goldman exploding briefcase toy, and I exploded the briefcase, and it and it swear and my bird dies. Get and, out of here! You had a heart attack. And that's what they the doctor said. Yeah, that we had talked to a vet because we had a dog, and he said he probably had a heart attack. And I'm like, oh great, I killed. I uh, I wouldn't and, talk for like weeks. Yeah, I was so upset. I was gonna say it's the opposite with my bird. I'm the one who's having a heart attack because he's crazy. He could get out of control. I, I mean, he's not. He's not gigantic or anything, thank goodness. <laughs> he, he laughs with me. Yeah, he's wonderful. I mean, people don't realize how sweet, you know, that, that people tend to look at birds. I know I did at one point in my life, like they're goldfish, you know. You don't think of them uh, to be affectionate in the way that a dog or a cat might be. But he's super, super affectionate. I mean, he just loves to be pet. And, kissed on his head and stuff like that. How did you get, how did you get them? Did you get, did you get them yourself? Or? I was not looking for a pet. Um, and frankly, if I felt like I had a choice, I, I, I wouldn't have taken them in because at the time there was like black market parrots coming from South America where they were smuggling them in. That may have been the way he came in the country. I don't know. I was on location and this is a long time ago. I was on location in North Carolina uh, and we, that's back during my makeup days and I needed acrylic paint. Uh, and um, it was kind of in the boonies. And 
I went to a hobby store. Someone told me where there was a hobby store. And uh, I went in and they, I said, where's the paint? And they said, you go down and make a left and there's the paint and I'm there looking at it. And he's in a small cage across from the paint. And he was doing everything to be cute. <laughs> Every time I'd look at him, he'd be like. <laughs> and uh, uh, there was just like a spark. I, I felt like I had to, who was going to get him? You know, I, I, he was in a small cage already. I thought that that was really horrible. And uh, I, I said, how much for the bird? And she said, 500 bucks, which actually is cheap today anyway. And I said, I said, she said, somebody already has a down payment on him. I said, I will give you the money 100% right now. Here's my credit card. That's how I ended up with them. Not knowing what I was getting myself into really, because who knows how much the people know really about what life with a bird is like. You know, they see it on TV. They think it's gonna be easy, but I can't just leave them with anyone. I didn't, I, I didn't realize how much work he really is. Uh, uh, it's like having a perpetual two-year-old in the house and they get into everything, you know? Uh, and he actually went through a period when he turned, when he hit his teenage years <laughs> where um, he was actually going after me. Mm. And I mean blood. Mm. And uh, I, I didn't know what I was gonna do. I mean, I was, I was in tears a couple of times because he's just had a brain transplant. And, um, uh, me and Dorothy were watching TV one night and it was about a horse whisperer. And Dorothy says, that's what you need, a horse, a, a parrot whisperer. The next day she calls me in and she goes, you're not gonna believe this. And she shows me the LA Times. There's like a third of a page article in the LA Times on this guy named Ken Globus, the parrot whisperer, the next day. And he was here in the Valley, San Fernando Valley. And I went on the internet, I found him and he came over. He came over, he walked in the house, walked straight across the room, right up to the bird, grabbed the bird by the, by the ankles, kind of spun him around a couple of times and the bird went, whoa, you're in charge. And he said that when they get to that age, <clears throat> they'll have a hormonal surge that where they become like adults and they wanna know who's in charge because if it's them, they wanna take care of business. So he was, uh, uh, he, he was testing me basically to see if he was in charge or if I was in charge by, by biting me and stuff like that. And uh, um, Ken says that what I just did is he'll never forget that probably, but he also said that I needed to trim his, his flight feathers. Now they grow back like every, you know, th six months, but he trims them almost like fingernails. And once he feels dependent on you to get around the house. He's, he knows you're in charge. Now, when he trimmed his feathers, I cried, man. That really upset the hell out of me. But, uh, you know, I let him grow back. And if he gets aggressive, then they get trimmed, you know. But I've always thought of him as a rescue, rescue bird. You know, I couldn't leave him in that hobby store, you know, where someone was going to be feeding him mac and cheese or something. <laughs> All right. So, Doug. You've won the Oscar, you're doing the makeup, everything's great, and you're like, you know what, it's not good enough. Even though 99% of Hollywood gets a job and sticks with it for their entire careers, eh, fuck it, I'm gonna change. And you go to your boss and you're like, yeah, 
even though I kind of haven't done it, can I do special effects? And your boss is like, yeah, but you won an Oscar in makeup. You're doing great in makeup. You're like, yeah, I'm bored with that. Can I do some special effects? And they just loved you as a person. So they gave you a chance. Sure enough, you became one of the greatest special effects artists of all time. And then you do that for a while. And then you start getting into production design. And like I said earlier, I think you like ran the catering company by the end of your run. Did did I miss anything? Well, it's a little, it's kind of like you put it all in a box and shook it. <laughs> But basically, the idea is all there. <laughs> okay. So there's this great line in Seven where Brad Pitt looks at um, Kevin Spacey and he says, do you ever look around and say to yourself, wow, it is amazing how fucking crazy I am. So I always thought that was such an interesting premise. Like, how are people self-aware or not? Are you aware, Doug, of how unusual your career path has been? Uh, yeah. And what's your take on it? My take is that I can't understand how anyone can work in this business and do the same thing for 40 years. There's so much cool stuff happening all around and so many amazing people that you're going to meet. Star Trek was really the magic ingredient because when you're on a show, for multiple years, it becomes a family and you all know each other. When you do motion pictures, the job is over in like three to six months. And you usually don't even see those people again. But when you're on a TV show like Trek, you get to know Mike Westmore, you know, you get to know Gary Hutzel and Dan Curry and Mike Okuda and, you know, and if you're having fun, and you say, you know, I've always wanted to be in the art department. Is there any way that a guy like me can kind of slide sideways into the art department? You see, it's, we came out here to do Dick Tracy. And as soon as that was over, I ran over to Paramount and I begged Mike Westmore to let me come do makeup on, on Star Trek. And he was like, but, you know, you, you're going to be nominated for an Academy Award and you're doing features. And what do you want to do a TV show for? And I go... Mike, you don't understand. This is where I need to be. And he just laughed and I was on the show and uh, I started on TNG and I was a huge fan of the show. It wasn't like just a science fiction show to me. To me, it was a thoroughbred. It was started by Roddenberry and Justman, uh, you know, uh, that meant an awful lot. I mean, I enjoyed the movies by Harv Bennett and, you know, those guys. But to me, this, these were the guys I wanted to, I grew up reading about them, making a Star Trek was really a pivotal book for me, you know. So I started working there and 50% of being a success in the business and continuing to work because most people are out of a job. It's a revolving door. Shows don't last forever. You don't stay somewhere forever. You have to not just be good at your job, but you have to be, they have to like working with you and feel that you're indispensable. So I was on I did makeup on Next Generation for three years and had an incredible time and so much fun. And I think Mike wanted me to be one of the guys to help him head up Deep Space Nine. But since then, I had met Mike Okuda on stage on Next Generation. And, uh, and that, that was my opening into the art department. I spent a lot of hours on those sets as a makeup artist. But I was an, always an artist artist. And I really 
to live on those sets, to live on the Enterprise D, to look at those graphics and be blown away by the closer you look, the more you see that this guy who did this is crazy. I mean, he figured it out. He understands how it works, but he doesn't make it so complicated that you can't understand it. So do you, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you remember the first time we met? I thought it was when I came over. Did we meet outside of your place? Oh, yes. Yes. We met in the room you're in right now. Oh, yeah. That's so. But that, that was the toys that made us. Yes. So we you got in there early. You got to my house. Yes. Early. Yes. <laughs> but nobody told Doug. So this is what happened for those of you that weren't there. I, we were doing a Star Trek episode. By the way, Doug, I completely snuck that in. Netflix never approved a Star Trek episode. They were like, I think it was supposed to be uh, Power Rangers. We're like, yeah, we're going to do Star Trek. I didn't know if there would be a third season. I've never said that publicly before. I just did the Star Trek episode. But anyway, so we got Doug to agree to do an interview, but I knew my schedule would not allow me to do the interview. But I wanted to meet Doug. And we were shooting it at his house. I stole that episode. That was my show. <laughs> you did. You, you and Dave Vaughn. I had people stole come it. up to me on the street. Who saw me in it? Yeah. It's crazy. The power of Netflix. Yep. So they, so I was given the wrong time and nobody told Doug I was coming early. So I ring the bell. And I think Doug's my hair was like, still in curlers when you got there. <laughs> That's right. So Doug's like, hello? And I'm like, hey, I'm from Toy. He's like, you're here four hours early. I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I'm, I came early just to meet you. I'm a big Trekkie. As you said about Gene, I grew up reading about people like you, Doug. So I just wanted to meet you. I got a hour and a half private tour of Doug's collection. And I not only got the collection in his office, which included, which is fucking nuts. For those of you that don't know, Doug invented, designed, created, whatever you want to call it, the Enterprise J. He had the Eagle Moss, uh, and I just always have to tell our listeners, Eagle Moss is not a sponsor. You would think they are because I bring them up every episode, but they are not. But Doug gave me a personal, while holding his Enterprise J, gave me a personal walkthrough of how he designed the Enterprise J then he showed me his collection of Gene Roddenberry uh, business cards. And then he took me to the garage where he's, I'll just say he's got some cool stuff. I'll leave it at that. I have some cool stuff. Yeah. And I will run off at the mouth about it. It might be of a Galactica nature. I'll leave it. I'll leave yeah, it at I have that. Full scale Uncle Martin spaceship in my garage from the original Ray Walston, my favorite Martian. It's not the original ship, but it's full size. And it's, I mean, as a kid, you told me not to run off here, but I have to say that I love that show as a kid and always loved the idea of Uncle Martin who ended up being Boothby right. on Next Generation. That's right. The, the spaceship was in his, hidden in, in Tim's garage. And if anyone saw it, it that, that would be a problem. In real life, no one cares. 
I could leave the garage door open. There's a spaceship in my driveway. Nobody cares, you know, on television though. It's a big deal. All right. So now this episode is about the Starships A through Z episode. So Doug, I have a very direct, serious question for you. I've wanted this answered for a long time. How does a Federation starship with one nacelle create a warp field? Well, you know, Gene Roddenberry always said that starships have even numbers of nacelles. They broke that rule after he was gone. I mean, you know, the Enterprise and all good things ended up with three nacelles. And, but Gene was a B-17 pilot during the war and he, he flew, you know, multi-engine planes. And uh, they, he always had, not that there aren't planes out there that, you know, but, but he always, as a matter of fact, I, I personally heard him say it, even numbers of nacelles only. You know, the, I mean, the basic idea is that the nacelles are functioning in such a way where by changing the, the, the uh, energy in one, you're changing the shape of the warp bubble, which controls the flight of the ship, you know? Uh, so it was Franz Joseph in the tech manual who did, I guess it was, he called it a destroyer, which as a kid, I was always offended. I, I love Franz Joseph. I love what he did. But for me, Star Trek is not about battles. It's not about wars, warfare and stuff. I think he called it a destroyer. And the other one was a dreadnought. To me, those were militaristic terms. And even, even then, you know, I, I didn't like that, that idea. But yeah, it was Franz Joseph did the single nacelle ship and it's really not you know if if it had been on the show gene probably would have nixed it well i understand three because what i've always heard is the third one is just a power source for better weapons and that but one is that the nacelle doesn't generate energy the energy comes from your warping from your from the uh you know your the warp core that's where the power is coming from i'm embarrassing myself <laughs> All right, next curveball. You ready? What does NCC stand for? Well, Franz Joseph said that it meant naval construction contract. What it really comes from originally was Matt Jeffries, the designer, his aviation background, and that the numbers on airplanes, if you were in the United States, N stood for United States, C stood for commercial. And he added another C to it because he thought it, it balanced out a little better. He never intended it to mean anything specifically. Mike Okuda thinks that it doesn't really mean anything. That it's like when you go to get your driver's license and there's some letters in there. It does. I like the idea that it does mean something. I, you know, I, I always liked, actually, I always liked naval construction contracts. Me too. That, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like that. There's something fun about it. The 17, there's no doubt that that comes from the B-17 because not only was Gene a B-17 pilot, but Matt Jeffries was a flight engineer on a B-17 during World War II and he flew missions over Africa against Rommel. So that's really, that's really where it comes from. If you look at the Enterprise, you'll see so many visual cues and clues that lead directly to the B-17. I wrote a couple of articles about it once that pointed out specific things on a B-17. So I like naval construction contract. I don't think there's anything that was ever canon 
meaning that it was set on the show what it's supposed to be. Can you give us a few examples of the B-17 features that are in the Constitution class? Well, I mean, if you take a look at the fronts of the nacelles, if you were to take the bulk, the Boussard collector, which they didn't call it that then, they didn't know what it was. If you took that off, it really is like the front of a B-17 engine. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of the structure around it, you know, there, there's kind of pedals that three of them on the bottom of, if you look, at a B-17 engine, and I don't remember exactly what it does on the engine, whether it controls the flow of air because it was an air-cooled engine. Uh, it, it's there, it's, it's totally there. If you look at across the saucer from behind and line up the bridge and the teardrop it's sitting on and the top of the saucer, I could pull a line off of that that totally follows the uh, flight deck of a B-17. You know, the bridge is, Take a look at a B-17 up near the, the top, right behind where the pilot sits, there's a, a, a rotating machine gun there that is just like a bridge. And then it scoops down where the windshield is, which is just like the front of the teardrop. You, you know, Matt, he loved airplanes and he spent his time building them and drawing them. And even after Star Trek for years and years, I mean, he did covers for, uh, Aviation Weekly and, you know, magazines like that. That was the thing he lived for. So it found its way into the enterprise. And of course it would, you know. Um, I, I've always thought that um, there are also very strong connections to uh, sailing ships as well. If you look at the fantail on the secondary hull, the way it scoops in and stick a rudder there, just like an old British, you know, ship of the line. Then uh, the cells being on those long spindly pylons, it's a lot like the sails of a ship, you know? When I've worked on the show, before that, when I was a kid, one of the things I loved about the Enterprise were those spindly nacelle pylons. People complained about those all the time, saying they couldn't possibly support the energy because a lot of people tend to look at things from the negative side, trying to find what's wrong with it, instead of going, well, apparently these people are in command of technologies that, and materials that we don't know anything about. They're several hundred years in the future. So the way those nacelles float, they defied gravity, which when you look at the model in the Smithsonian, it, they, they still, they defy gravity. And that makes the ship seem futuristic. Uh, when I've worked on uh, other ships, they've always pushed me to fatten up those pylons. And I always thought that was the exact wrong way to go. If you look at the J, I made, first of all, that ship is three miles long. So it may look spindly to you in the cell pylons, but I made them impossibly spindly. I wanted people to look at it and say, that's ridiculous. It looks like a, you could knock that nacelle off there like a soap bubble. Yes, I did. that's what you want. They, they've got, they've got to unscrew the top of their head and take out that ape brain and put the future person brain in there. Because, and they, and they also have to think about well, why am I why am I trying to find what's wrong with this thing? Why don't I use my imagination? What did they what were they trying to say there? They're not dumb, you know. The guys who designed it, there's something going on as far as the aesthetic and why it works and why it makes you think it's futuristic. I find people that are that way about a lot of things. Too bad, shouldn't be. Have more fun, you know. It's it's fun. First of all, I agree. Second of all. Um in the toys that made a Star Trek episode, Todd McFarlane 
And I, I did that interview. I mean, I was in Phoenix in his office when he said it. And again, I'm a lifelong Trekkie since I was like eight, maybe six. And I never thought of this. He was like, when, the, when you first saw the Enterprise on TV, it, it was impossible. You had this giant fat plate. It should be falling over. It should be top heavy. Because every spaceship on TV and film before that looked like a rocket ship, like like a like the Mercury program or something. Well, feel free to disagree. If you read a lot of science fiction, the Enterprise wouldn't surprise you, but the idea that whoever was designing this evidently was reading as much science fiction as you were to come up with the design so different. Everybody back then were expecting uh, cigar shaped or, you know, with a pointy nose and, and tail fins and which actually is kind of funny because that whole idea became absurd at a certain point. That that was just old science fiction movies. But what are we looking at now? Or what looking at rockets landing on their tail? Isn't that crazy? It really is crazy. Yeah, it really is amazing. Now, th there's a piece of video on the internet, you could probably find it on YouTube, where it was at the, it may have been the San Diego Comic-Con, and they had a Starship Smackdown. And they had fans in there from Star Wars, who to them, the, the Star Destroyers, the greatest, you know, and then Star Trek fans were so dedicated to the, the Enterprise and ships like that. And they, they, they basically fight it out about why well, little did they know, but Neil deGrasse Tyson was in the audience. And he gets up and he makes this speech about the Enterprise and says, you have to look at this and try to remember what it looked like to people when they saw it for the very first time in 1966. I mean, it was designed like 64 or 65, you know? And he says, and when you consider that, and he, and he compares it to some of the other spaceships, you know, like um, the day the earth stood still, where he says, and the silver guy in the silver underwear, and he, you know, he says, when you consider what that, and he points to the Enterprise, look like when people first saw it, that is the most seductive, the sexiest, the most amazing. And he goes on like that for a minute, and the audience is going crazy. And when you consider that this design from 1964 still looks ahead of the curve and seems to have such, it fires people's imaginations up. I could go on the internet and see thousands of variations that people have designed on their own, on their own time. They're so taken by it. Part of it is because they're tickled by what Star Trek represents. Part of it is because they feel like they're part of a club because they understand the enterprise, you know? And then of course, there's always the optimism thing. People wanna feel that we have a great future ahead of us and the enterprise kind of embodies that. But as a kid who grew up in the fifties and sixties where some, some science fiction looks pretty damn bad. I mean, in, in 1965, Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon looked absurd, right? That was only 20 years. Look at the Enterprise. We're talking going on 60 years and people still can't get enough of it. Star Trek at its best doesn't follow, it leads. 
Star Trek shouldn't be imitating Star Wars or anything else. It's its own thing. The Enterprise is not a Star Wars spaceship. Hey, they've done lots of beautiful ships for Star Wars, but it's 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 supernatural, really, the appeal of that design. And you know, one of the wonderful things is that I got to, and me and Mike and Denise got to know Matt Jeffries. He was like an uncle. As a matter of fact, some of the Bob Justman was like an uncle. We used to go to his house and spend the evening. You know, I mean, to 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 actually sit down with him and discuss the ship. That's an incredible privilege that you can't have anymore, you know? What's something he said to you about designing the, the first enterprise that nobody knows? Like the thing that was just like, holy shit, I can't believe I didn't see that. Well, you see, the thing is that Matt is so practical about everything. The other thing, of course, is that so much has been written about the Enterprise, and we've done videotapes of him talking about it. The most uh, revealing thing to me was to realize that we put more in it than he designed into it. You know what I mean? Part of your job as a production designer is not to figure out every tiny little thing. You do the broad strokes. If you've got a hit like Star Trek, people are going to fill in the blanks and think of things that you never did, you know? Although I have to say that people like uh, Rick Sternbach, myself, Mike Okuda, uh, Andy Probert, they do think about the function of the ship. Matt has a sense of practical aeronautics, but he doesn't sweat how a warp field works. You know what I mean? We tend to think about that when we design the later ships. And you see, that's another beautiful thing about Star Trek, that, and the later Star Treks especially. Matt suggested a lot of stuff. He didn't fill in the blanks. Then my generation came along and said, well, this could be, I could take it apart. It looks like it comes apart. It makes sense. You start filling in the blanks. And then when you end up actually doing Star Trek yourself, you start figuring out things that nobody is going to see on the show ever. What happens is that the fans come along and the same thing happens to them that happened to us. They look at it and they say, well, what if you take this piece off? And why would that come off like that? And well, that must mean that there's an antimatter injector that runs down. And you could see where the warp core comes out. People love taking that stuff apart. When you design something, you have to come at it from the point of view that people want to, to disassemble this puzzle and see how it works. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm really glad you brought that up because I would have forgotten to have asked you this, but this is something I noticed. The Tenudos are tired of hearing this story, but a couple of years ago, I texted my wife, something good had happened at work. I go, baby, I got some good news. And she wrote back, did Eagle Moss go bankrupt? So if that shows you anything, John's about to kill himself. It's two days in a row he's had to hear that story. Um, you, why do you have too many of those models in your wife's? I, I, I think they've made about 250, and I think I have at least 130 to 150 of them. By the way, 
99% of them are Federation. So I don't even have like most of the alien ships. Yeah, but, I mean, I, you know, I love Starfleet. I love doing yeah, stuff. me too. It's logical, it makes sense. The beauty of Starfleet ships is you can mix and match pieces. You, you know, if you're going to build a starship, you go, well, let's see, I need about 300 feet of phaser strip. And, uh, you know, this you're at this Federation Starfleet Depot, and I, I'm going to need uh, like four airlocks. And, um, you know, yeah. it, that's the the fun of it. It's like color forms. Does anybody know what color forms are anymore? I do. You can mix and match stuff to make new ships. Uh, but one of the things I always thought was really hilarious is that when we did Enterprise, it was the first show that premiered when there was an internet. And there are people in that audience who just have their knives out. They, they want to like, they want to show you that you made a mistake. Plenty of people who love it and don't approach it that way, but they're not noisy, you know? So it was, we were all taken back by the, you know, you, you went on the internet and you're like, oh my God, I mean, I can't even believe you're saying this about us, <laughs> you know? But, let, but, but Doug, here's the question I want to ask you. And then I got to turn this over to Tenudos because I'm monopolizing this episode. But it's just so easy to talk to you. Do you agree with this or disagree with this observation? Before Eagle Moss, like all Star Trek fan artwork was a combination of Constitution, Miranda, O'Berth and Excelsior class ships. After Eagle Moss, you start seeing all Akira, Steamrunner, all Thunder, like, the, I just feel like their ships, even the like stuff from the background, out of focus, Wolf 359, like they inspired the community. So now when you see fan artwork, you see all these different ships. Did you notice that? Are you talking to our, our friends at Tenudos, right? No, I'm talking to you. Well, I'm talking oh, to everybody. Really, huh? I'm talking to everybody. <laughs> I was just giving them a heads up. I'm going to shut up. No, it's just that as time went on, there was just more and more to play with. You know, I mean, uh, when we did uh, first contact and there was a battle, that one of the great things about <laughs> the show is that we tend to have a lot of different designs for ships in the backgrounds. And that was because the people who worked on the show really loved it. And they didn't want it to look like we just went out and bought a bunch of Reliance and every ship's a Reliant. You know, that's not realistic. There was a scene, uh, and this was a mistake really that they made on Picard. There was a scene in one of the- What way, whoa, Doug, there is no way Picard made a mistake. That show is perfect. Well, there was a there was a sequence where I'm being very sarcastic right now. <laughs> a thousand ships show up, a fleet, an armada that are all the same ship, all the same damn yeah, same, same damn ship. I that will never happen again on the show. There was such a uproar about that, and I don't blame the fans. The fans don't want to feel like you just rubber stamped it to get it out the door. They want to know that you went the extra mile. That's why they love the Battle of Wolf 359, there were a whole bunch of ships made out of, you know, AMT kits stuck together and people love that. But, but here's the good news about episode 10 of Picard. I was still in such shock 
from episode nine of Picard that I couldn't even take in the fact that there was a, a one-class fleet of ship. Hey, I have another thing to say about that. Remember when the old, when the Enterprise was the only ship in the quadrant? Remember? Yes. And that it would take Enterprise like three months to get back to Earth. Okay, so now you got 4,000 ships. What are they all within like a couple of minutes of where they need to be? You know, where were, I, you know, that to I have problem. you know, I don't mind it once in a while if they show the Ferengi getting to Earth in a couple of days. You know, I mean, that doesn't bother me so much in Little Green Men, you know. Well, the, the, I mean, the best example of that is the motion picture. There's only one Federation starship in S Sector 01. Well, I mean, Gene, I think everyone was strange to be like a fleet of 2,000 ships showing up within minutes of each other. You know, it's the universe is huge. I mean, it's enormous. But they felt like they needed to show like this gigantic armada. You know, I think that it, at, at the very least, it should take days for some more ships to show up, you know. Well, to that point, I like I remember that like unbelievable shot from the end of I think I can season four or five where the Defiant flies into the fleet and makes a U-turn and then starts flying. It's the one with the baseball where uh, Garrick. It's my favorite moment in all of Deep Space Nine. Garrick throws the baseball up, oh, and yeah. the the founder or whoever is like, "What does that mean?" He's like, "It means he'll be back." It's the episode where they leave Deep Space Nine, the, the Federation abandons it. It's the last shot before they cut to the last shot of the fleet. And Garrick sits at Cisco's desk and Cisco had left the baseball on the desk. And Garrick, or not Garrick, not Garrick. What's his name? Ducat. Ducat, thank you. Ducat throws the baseball up and the, the founder guy or whatever, Jem Hadar, is like, what's the significance of the baseball? And he's like, Cisco's sending me a message. It means he'll be back. That's the, that's the episode where Dax dies, isn't it? I believe. I don't think so. I think that's... The last shot of that season is after the baseball, the Defiant flies into a Federation Klingon fleet makes a beautiful U-turn. But I even remember in college watching that being like, yeah, why would you have a fleet that big and everybody's six feet apart? You would obviously spread them out as wide as possible. Anyway, we're really nitpicking and I'm dominating more than ever. So I'm sorry. Tenudos, what, what am I, please bulldoze me. Okay. Well, well you know, I, I got to tell a very fast story, Doug. Uh, <laughs> Uh, going back to your makeup days on a movie you did called Chud. So, <laughs> and uh, I got to tell you a true story. I was in, uh, I was in um, driver's at driver's education and the teacher made us go around the room and say, what obstacles should you watch for in front of you? If you ever are driving. And by the time they get to the T's, you know, with the Tenuto last name, everybody's answered everything that matters. So oh, oh, I had just seen Chud. Uh, you you did a little cameo in there. I remember that scene. And uh, uh, I, I rose my hand and I said, uh, well, you got to watch out for cannibalistic human underground dwellers coming out of the sewers. And I got I had to write a paper and I got in a lot of trouble and it was all <laughs> Doug, Doug's 
Doug's fault for making the yeah, makeup so no, cool I'm in that film. I helped get your film on <laughs> but, um, And then I wanted to, uh, to read this. You, you mentioned this a little bit before, but um, this is from February 1st, 1968. And I thought some of the listeners might like to hear this. This is an article by Harvey Aronson about little 14-year-old Doug Drexler. And I, as a couple of lines here, I thought were interesting. Doug's quotes back then. Uh, it was about a committee of uh, a 20-man action group uh, from Dawnwood Junior High School, headed by Doug Drexler, 14-year-old idealist, which I think is a very apt description of you, Doug. Um, and the quote is, uh, there's, you're sort of explaining your role and you say, I'm an instigator. Uh, I make the other kids write to start, uh, NBC. Uh, we're writing every day. I'd say that I've written a couple of hundred letters in the last week. I don't think television can afford to lose such a show, a show that boldly predicts man's future. And then they have, uh, you wanted to be a doctor at that time. I but just, the they asked me what, I, no, I didn't want to be a doctor. <laughs> I just thought that if I, uh, uh, that if I said, I want to be a comic book artist, you know, that would have taken away some of the gravitas. You know what I mean? Remote. They'd say, oh, he's an idiot. He reads comic books. I knew enough to say that I was, you know. <laughs> that was smart. You knew PR back then. I, I love your last line, the last line in the uh, newspaper. It says, <laughs> I pity NBC ah. if, Star Trek, if Star Trek goes off the air. I thought that was a great... That was a great line. By the way, you get arrested for that now. It was very threatening. <laughs> threatening. Well, he was he was predicting Mr. T on NBC. That's right. That was it. I pity the fool. <laughs> but I would. And they got that from me, by the way. I was thinking, what what was that like for you to be to go from? Because I also love the story of like you and you starting the the Federation Trading Post with Ron Barlow and. All the, all the things you did when you were younger, but you know, uh, gone to college and so on. But you were, you, you sort of had this. Uh, uh, did you have this vision? You you this drive? I, I, and what was that? What was your first day like working on Star Trek? I mean, that had to have been a fifteen year, twenty year dream at that point. And what was that like? That, the thing was that um, we had our makeup lab was in Brooklyn when Next Generation was happening. And that was driving me crazy. They were doing Star Trek again, and I wasn't there. And my partner, Tag Leone, says, well, Doug, why don't you uh, give Bob a call, meaning Bob Justman? And I'm like, I can't get, and I'm like, well, why can't I? And, you know, I'm, I'm a professional in the business. And, and I got on the phone, and I called right then and there. I called the Paramount switchboard and asked to be connected to the Star Trek uh, production office. I wanted to speak to Robert H. Justman, and they put me right through. I had Bob Justman on the phone just like that. It was like unbelievable. And so we, we became friends over the phone. There was no internet or anything, uh, you know, over the phone and writing letters. And uh, he invited me out. I, I was out there a couple of times. I was there before there were any sets. And then I came out to see the sets. And uh, so I, I, I sort of felt like I had my foot kind of in the door. Uh, I couldn't do makeup on the show because there's an East Coast union and a West Coast union. And I was in the East Coast Union. Uh, so that, that was definitely a problem. But what happened was that when we got Dick Tracy and Warren Beatty brought us out to Los Angeles, Warren Beatty was a heavy hitter. He had a lot of power. And um, he got my partner and I in the makeup union. Otherwise, see, the movie 
Warren hadn't decided if it was going to be a union show yet. Hey, Doug, Doug, sorry to interrupt, but how, how did you beat everybody to get it? Like, how'd you beat Rick Baker? Like, how'd you do that? Well, you know, um, <clears throat> by all rights, we never should have gotten a job. Yeah. Nick Smith, my mentor, who's the greatest makeup artist who ever lived, said, you're not going to get the job. And then when we got the job, he said, well, you maybe you got the job, but you'll never lift a brush on stage and you'll never get in a union. And because the odds were so against it, because there were these big name guys like Rick Baker and Bob Bottin, Stan Winston. There were a huge number of really super makeup artists. But I think that Warren wanted, number one, some guys who were hungry, right? You know, um, if you're doing all those big shows as other guys are, this is just another show to them. But to us, it was like a show we'd give our right arm to do to get on Dick Tracy. And he, he could sense that from us. That's part of it. Warren is not like everybody else. And uh, he invited us to his house and we met him and we hung out for the day. And next thing we knew, we had the job. It's all, it's all because Warren Beatty, he the drumbeat that he follows is in his own head. He's not following anybody else. He's not looking at it, what other people are doing. It's what <laughs> plays well to him and what he thinks. And it's all because of Warren Beatty that I, I ended up in the union out here in a position and a place where I could go over to Star Trek and go to work. I was in the union now. And it was because so do you, do you work on Star Trek without Dick Tracy? I think, I don't think anything would have stopped me, frankly you know, from getting there. I mean, when we were at, when I was still back in New York, they were making Star Trek, the motion picture, Jeff Mandel and I, who is a, you know, graphic designer on Picard now, uh, we flew out to Los Angeles just to sneak onto the Paramount backlot to try to catch a glimpse of Star Trek, the motion picture. And we met, we got, you know, we were invited, we got an invite into the art department and, you know, there was something driving us towards it. I don't think anything would have stopped us, but Warren definitely had a hand in facilitating it, making it happen. The other beautiful thing I want to mention here is that <clears throat> I was in a unique position when I went to the next generation and working for Mike Westmore. I wasn't just another makeup artist. I had just come off of Dick Tracy, one of the biggest shows in town. Everyone wanted to be on that. Every actor was in it. It was huge. So I could go over and work on the next generation and be a fan. And no, and I was nominated for an Academy Award. I won an Academy Award while I was on the show. So I could be a goofy fan in front of everyone, and there was nothing anyone would they'd say, well, I mean, you know, he just was work with Warren Beatty and he just won an Academy Award. I think that for someone like you know, Mike Okuda, who's super talented, but he didn't come in there with all of that behind him. So he couldn't go on stage and act like a fan and go to Gates McFadden and say, I saw you in Data's Day, you were so awesome. I would, you know, I could just run off at the mouth and act like a fan. And it was okay because of who, where I came from. And so I, <laughs> well, Dick Tracy put me in a really good position. I kind of came to the show as a mini, almost, you know, I, I really was kind of a mini celebrity at that moment. There were articles in the newspaper about us. And, you know, can you think of a better way to go to work on Star Trek? They're tickled to have you. And aside from that, everyone on those shows, it was such a wonderful family. I had such a good time with those people. We laughed constantly, no matter what department I was in.
Can you tell us about that day that you snuck onto the set and met Mike Minor and Lee oh, Hole? Yeah. Did they did they welcome you? Did they give you a tour or were they Well, the thing was we had no invitation. We figured we were just going to go out and we were naive. We left notes on windshields of cars parked outside of Paramount, just on the off chance it was someone who worked there. Man, I can imagine they read that and thought we were nuts. What did they say? You know, we're big Star Trek fans, and if you work in there, and if there's any way, we're really good guys, you know. <laughs> this is while you're working on Dick Tracy. No, no, no. no. This is during Star Trek, the motion picture. Wait, oh, was okay. it 78, 78, 79? Something like that, I guess. Uh, so we, we flew out just on the off chance that someone would help us get on a lot. And, and uh, it was me and Jeff Mandel, and we, we even wrote a fanzine about it called Fandom Triumphs. And um, I managed to get it. Jeff called the art department and got Lee Cole on the phone, who I ended up working with on, you know, on the show. We had her in the art department at times. Uh, and she took pity on us and let us come in. I also, I had gotten an appointment at, um, was it Westheimer? One of the visual effects houses was on the back lot at the time and got us, got an appointment to go there too. So that's how we got on the back lot. And when we went up to the art department, I brought my portfolio with me. Lee Cole wrote a recommendation. You know, Lee Cole says, and uh, I showed that to her while I was working on Enterprise, I guess, because she doesn't remember it at all, but she was like, she thought I was out of my mind. I still had that and coveted it, you know. It was the same art department through Star Trek's motion picture, Into Next Generation, uh, Voyager. It was that art department. If you ever watch Sunset Boulevard, the movie, there's a scene where they're at Paramount and the writer's room is up there where Joe Longo's office in the Star Trek art department used to be. And there's a scene where they look out and you could see uh, DeMille standing outside in front of the stage. That's the stage that we, you know, we shot Deep Space Nine on. It's amazing to look at it. I forgot what I was talking about, but uh, it couldn't have been that interesting. <laughs> hey, let me ask you something. You say that a lot of names, but there's one name I have not heard you say, I think, and I might be confusing the name. Probert. Andy Probert, I mentioned him. Then who, who's the guy that worked on Next Gen with Prober? Oh, well, it was Rick Sternbach. No. Michael Kuda. No. Uh, Talking about Richard James? No, he lives in like Virginia now. Well, I think Probert does. Is it Probert? Yeah, I think Andy Probert does. It is Probert. Okay. Okay. Because his name, like to me, my favorite Starship design is the Constitution class refit. And to me, that's mostly him. But well, let's just say that Andy gave it to Candy Coating. Uh, there were a lot of people who were involved with that design, but Andy came along and tricked out the details. You know, he, he, he's the guy who, I, I, as a matter of fact, I just saw an interview with Andy recently where, what was the name of the guy? I can't remember who, um, where they were building the model that he, that guy totally designed the nacelles. He wanted to design the nacelles. 
and he and he talked Andy talks about how he put an Art Deco influence into it that went into the rest of the ship. That's on our show. I think that's our show. Oh, you see, everybody watch that show because it's really good. <laughs> and I know the guy who produced it too. Good looking dude. But but uh, you know, I idolize Andy. Uh, I think that he's he's given Star Trek so much design-wise. They've kind of the look of the Enterprise D on the exterior and the interiors is so heavily influenced by Andy Prober. The thing I love about, like, look at the D bridge. What a classic design that is, and it doesn't follow anybody else. Just like the original bridge doesn't follow anybody else. It's not trying to be anyone else. When they did the D bridge, they weren't even trying to be what they used to be. It was an entirely different. Gene wanted a design that would be dramatically different, but still feel somewhat the same. The same sense of organization two people sitting up front, the flight controller and the you know, operations panel. That is so brave to do that. I find that some of the Starship bridges kind of slid backwards after Next Generation. They kind of became cockpits again. As a matter of fact, in, I guess it was in Generations where they had added consoles to either side of the bridge, elevated consoles of the, of the D bridge. I thought that was a huge step backwards to start. That the thing that, Gene always wanted was for it to look to be more simplistic as we as we moved ahead. There were less consoles. They just had the ATMs in the back of the Enterprise D bridge, you know. It's such an elegant design. But that would really a lot of that came from Andy being guided by what Gene wanted. But you know, um, Andy is an amazing talent. I think that. The one place that Andy, I'm not going to say Andy made a mistake, but I'm going to say that there are some people who, who are brilliant and they don't want someone messing with their work. And it really upsets them when someone is telling them how to do something, especially when a lot of the people who tell you what they want are visual amateurs. They can't design, they can't draw, they can't do any of that. And now they're telling you how to do it. If you can't get past that, you're not going to last long in the business. I, I have no problem. You want me to move it this way? I'll do that. But this is the way I think it should be. Just hear me out and then make your decision. I don't have a problem with that. That's why I've continued to work almost continuously for almost 40 years now. Andy, that's hard for him to do. And there's some people who cannot deal with that. Andy's one of those guys. And that's why we only saw Andy for a couple of years on Next Gen. I, I always, it's so funny you say that because after I interviewed him, because I've always wondered, how are you working with Spielberg and Zemeckis and Roddenberry? And then like nine years later, you're doing ro robot jocks. Like, and that, and by the way, Ron Cobb is the control experiment because Ron Cobb was also working with all those people. He also worked on robot jocks, but the same year he was working on robot jocks, he was still doing ILM work and everything. So I've always wondered what happened with Probert that unlike you and almost everybody, 
who never stop being a part of this click, for lack of a better word. He was in it very briefly, despite being at the top of it. It, it really all comes down to understanding what the job really is and who you're going to be working with. There are people who are above you, above the line, producers and directors. The sword ultimately falls on them if the show doesn't work. So if they don't like what you're doing or don't think it's what they had in their mind's eye, which they have no idea what's in their mind's eye, that I, it's so often you hear, I don't really know what it looks like, but when I see it, I'll know it. You're gonna deal with a lot of that. For some people, that could really burn you up. That burns Andy up. You don't even have any idea what you want and you're telling me what to do. And I am a, vis I am a professional artist. I'm a visual expert you know, and you're not listening to me. There's some people, they don't wanna have anything to do with that after a certain point. And he got to the point where he'd had it with that and he didn't wanna do it anymore. I've never had a problem with that. I've always had it firmly in my head that that was part of the challenge to focus their vision. Even if I'm giving them, if they're pushing me in a certain direction, I'm still getting plenty of myself in it. You know, if you, if you want to have a long career, you have to remember who your boss is and you can't, you know, divas don't work. If you're an actor, it, it, it works. If you're really up here and, and you're making a, you know, movies where they're making tons of money, you could afford to be that way. And I use the term diva, but it's not necessarily a bad term. We're lucky to have had Andy for as, for as long as we did. I'm sorry that he didn't, he wasn't able to stay because I think he is so brilliant. It's a real shame, but I, it, I, if, if you come in the business not realizing that, you're going to end up going home. And, and for some people, it's, it's just too much to have to deal with that. You know, I, I've, I'm working on Picard now, and I have my own ideas about how some things can go, but not everyone sees it the way I do. I already understand that I'm there to do your show. You know, here are my ideas. And we could blend them together to get closer to what you want. If I don't, if I don't give you what you want, ultimately, I, I failed. You know, it's I'm not there to show you I'm a genius. My job is to help you focus your idea, what it is you're looking for, what it, what the feeling is. I mean, look, if Matt Jeffries came on Star Trek and he didn't have Gene Roddenberry there, this Enterprise might have looked like a rocket ship. Yeah, because that's where Matt came from. Buck Rogers and stuff like that. You can see it in the shuttle he designed, the Buck Rogers. It was Gene who pushed him. So you have to understand that there are going to be times where there are people who can't draw a straight line or are going to make you think in a direction that you wouldn't have by yourself. And you have to get it in your head that that's a good thing. It's not bad. Hey, hey you're going to have moments where you did exactly what you wanted. No one told you to change a thing. I mean, the J, there were no revisions. That's what it was right out of the gate. You know, sometimes though, you're on a show and they wanna see, they're, they're, gonna, they're gonna run the clock out. They're gonna make you continue to do things until there's absolutely no time. And then they'll go back to the first one. <laughs> but that's just, 
the business. I, you know, you've got to have a, you've got to have a Zen head on your shoulders to be to work continuously for a long time. You know, that's beautiful. Uh, we're at the hour mark, so I want to be respectful of your time, Doug. Tenudos, I got my usual last licks questions, but um, please fire away. I want to make sure you get everything answered. You're thinking. I have a kind of a very fast question. Um, it's more of an opinion question. I just I, I'm curious what you you think of this idea. So I, I always liked Ralph Macquarie's. Not necessarily that I would have liked to have seen it in a in a Star Trek in the Star Trek movie as the Enterprise. But I always kind of I I liked Ralph Macquarie's Enterprise design. And I was wondering, do, do you think that there's some connection between the Enterprise D and the Ralph Macquarie? Because I mean, they both have that sort of flat bottom. Are you familiar with Ralph? No, I mean, obviously the discovery comes directly from Ralph Macquarie's mm. yeah. design. Yeah. When I first saw, and <laughs> it's like I said, everyone has different opinions. When I first saw Ralph Macquarie's paintings, I almost had a heart attack that this was going to be the Enterprise. I think it's a fine design on its own, but it shouldn't be the Enterprise. Right. I agree with that. Yes, absolutely. And, I, and for one thing is that it was so angular and hard-edged. And when the best enterprises are, they're sublime in their lines. They're almost marine animals. They're smooth and they're sleek. And, you know, the Macquarie design works okay for Discovery. There's so many, there's things about Discovery I don't understand. I don't understand why we've got that, you know, uh, there's like an opening that runs around the middle. I, you know, when you're doing science fiction, you could come up with, you could rationalize almost anything. I mean, that, part of our jobs, me and Mike, and Rick Sternbach, part of our jobs was to to rationalize things that the writers wanted that didn't make any sense, you know. So it's like if I was working on Discovery, I guess I could rationalize why it's like that. But my Star Trek sensibilities flip out because I don't, I can't. I'm like, what were they thinking here? I'm not really sure what the purpose of that was. Uh, there are some people who do science fiction where, uh, as long as it looks cool, it's science fiction. And then there's the people who are science really science fiction people and don't look at it that way at all. You know, you're looking underneath the skin and trying to figure out how it works. It's funny, what you're saying is my, my third least favorite thing about the design. The, the second least favorite is why does it spin in any of those directions? And then number one, it's not really a design thing, but uh, even calling it spore drive you know, probably Brian Fuller says, well, why don't you make this turn? That would be really cool. You know, and I'm, I'd be going, oh God, why? <laughs> I think part, part of it too is that when, when you look at the, the shows of Enterprise and before, if you were to turn them on in the television set, they, you could tell instantaneously it was Star Trek. You know, if, as long as you knew what the name Star Trek was, you know, and you could see like, oh, this is Star Trek. But when you watch, when you flip on any, I think of the newer shows, I could be watching The Expanse. I could be watching a, a, a hundred different modern science fiction shows. I could be watching an Apple Store ad. I mean, there's, 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 um, it, it isn't unique. I don't think it's, it, it's, it's, it may be beautiful and intricate and maybe all these different things, but it's not, there's no, um, I guess you could say, there's no uniqueness to it. To, to to I think in the new shows, whereas in the old shows it, it it was its own thing. I thought as a fan, that was my perception of it. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. You know, um, the more people you have on a show who are interested in aeronautics, aerospace, science, science fiction, the better Star Trek is going to look when you have those people on board. When you bring people in who, I mean, Gene Roddenberry always said, you don't have to know science fiction to write a Star Trek episode. But I think that when it comes to the design work, it really helps to have people who have a, a head on their shoulders that is kind of in that zone, rather than bringing in someone who, you know, I love the sea view and I love the flying sub from Lost in, from Voice of the Bottom of the Sea. But as the shows went on, there were designs that were so goofy and off the wall that you couldn't take them seriously. It had to be a joke, you know? And you don't want to do that on Star Trek. Star Trek takes itself seriously. It looks like it takes itself seriously. And then when you see the tech manuals, like Mike and Rick's tech manual, you go, wow, they really do. When I spent all those hours on stage and looked at the graphic, they're like, holy crap, this guy, this Mike Okuda is really, you know, um, if you, if, you, if Star Trek doesn't have that feeling, it's not Star Trek. That's why Star Trek, Star Trek has a lot of fans at JPL and NASA, and it's because there was something about it that, that rang true, that there were people behind it on the show who really thought about it. You know, <clears throat> Matt and Gene had friends at the Rand Corporation who wrote notes about, well, this really is not logical and you wouldn't do this. And they would do their best. You know, they might bend the rules once all. Even, as a matter of fact, Isaac Asimov on, they did a record called Inside Star Trek where Gene Roddenberry interviews Isaac Asimov. And he talks about exactly this, that he'll watch science fiction and it'll be so goofy and ridiculous. But then when you watch Star Trek, there was always a sense that even when they were bending the rules, they kind of knew what they were doing. And Gene said, well, you know, I have Asimov's Encyclopedia of Science on my desk throughout the entire production of the show. He would check things against what, that's why we have so many fans at JPL and so many fans at NASA and the Rain Corporate, because they watch the show and they make that connection that this isn't just goofy, this isn't goofy science fiction, you know? Um, there are people, who are working on the show who really understand uh, what, what works and what doesn't work. And you don't just do it because it looks, uh, you know, it's what I like, there's, there, there's cotton candy science fiction, you know? I mean, there was a scene on, oh, and I have to say that I'm on season two and three of Picard and it is really looking good, much better than season one. Now, Doug, Doug, point of order. When you say it's looking good, are you referring to like the cinematography or the artwork? Or are you saying it's becoming like, I don't know, a Star Trek show? <laughs> it feels more like Star Trek than anything right. do of late. And uh, part of it is... I've heard that's true for season three. Season two may have still missed most of the boat. No, I've been okay. there season two. And I guarantee you that episode one of season two, there are going to be moments where it might almost bring you to tears a couple of times. Is that because there's big flower alien spaceships and then a robot painted gold a minute later, like in episode nine of season one? 
which I consider to be the most random 60 minutes in the history of Star Trek? Or is it like good tears? Good tears. Okay. Good tears. And I'm not just talking about spaceships, although I will tell you that in my opinion, the ships in season two and three are much, you don't want to look at a Starfleet ship and say, well, where's the airlock and where's the phaser strip and where's the RCS quad and where's the, and there's been a lot of that on Star Trek of late, but it's there in Picard, you know? Um, you've got a production designer who is as big a fan as we are. Is, was, did that production designer design the red and white thing from season one? No, uh, Dave Blass came in on season two. Is the person who designed that red and white thing still working on the show? I don't know who it was. I was okay. There. But Dave is there as production designer. And that's why I'm there. And that's why Mike and Denise have been, are there too. I just want to ask about, you mentioned the Smithsonian, can't even say that. You mentioned the Smithsonian earlier, and I was just curious what um, the condition of the enterprise model was in and what needed to be restored. Well, they just did a big rest restoration on it uh, a couple of years ago. It's been restored three times. The first time was when it first went out to, when it first arrived and they didn't take it too seriously. It was just a science fiction problem. As a matter of fact, um, Margaret, uh, the curator at the Aerospace Museum said that the, sh the ship went through, it metamorphosized while it had been there. When they first got it, it was just this movie problem. Now it's cultural history from the point, you know, over the years. The first time it arrived, they did a restoration that painted all the weathering off of it. All the weathering was painted off. They just did a one tone across the thing, uh, which was, you know, they, they didn't treat it the same way they would treat the Wright brothers aircraft. Then there was another restoration right about the time when we were on TNG. And it was done by a real talented guy who had done models of the ship, ships for us on some of the shows. He lives in upstate New York. And he got the job. And sometimes it's possible to be blinded a little bit. He, he did a paint job on it that was so overwrought. He did weathering and panel lines that weren't there. And everyone was offended by it. And I was shocked that he did that. Uh, you know, I mean, how did you end up with that? That was the second restoration every fan hated about it had to have been three or four years ago. Yeah. Margaret Weidekamp was the curator. The, the ship had been moved out of the main museum and put down by the gift shop in a glass case. A lot of fans were offended. They stick it by the gift shop, but- It's in the gift shop. Oh, they got really offended. As Margaret explained it to me, if we had put it in a box, it would have been like Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. They would, you'd never know, they'd never find it again. It would be gone, out of sight, out of mind. Putting it in a case where people could still see it, kept it in the public eye, kept it in everyone's eye. So uh, they had had a small earthquake in DC. And after that, a bunch of cracks and one of the nacelles started to sag. Uh, and they decided that it, maybe it was time to do a new restoration. This time they didn't make the mistake they made last time because of Margaret really. 
they put together a blue ribbon panel. It was uh, Mike, Denise, Rick Sternbach, me, Andy Probert, uh, John Goodson from ILM were part of the blue ribbon panel. And it was, oh, oh and uh, sorry, I left out a couple of names. Um, we would oversee and make sure that it was being done correctly. But John Goodson was gonna be the point man as far as actually doing the work on the restoration. John Goodson's awesome. He's been at ILM forever and a huge Star Trek fan, huge. He's as big a fan as us, knows everything about the ship. So the restoration this time, it is gorgeous. It looks just like it did back then. Of course, the thing is, you know that the top of the saucer on the original Enterprise was never painted over. That was the one place they left untouched. Whenever they restore an airplane, or they always leave a section the way it was then. The top of the saucer is exactly how it was back when they were shooting. Wow. So they had that as a guide for colors and stuff. And this time they treated it like they were restoring like a Messerschmitt or something. They actually took samples of the paint. They found the different layers. They matched them. They found out that it, it is a spectacular job. Now, I know that they were... Uh, they're redoing part of the gallery, so it may not be there. The whole museum, or at least the section of the museum, may be closed. But it now has a case underneath Bob McCall's Cosmos painting as you come in. It is spectacular. And there, once at a couple of times an hour, the lights turn on, the engines spin. Uh, I have a bunch of really good pictures on my Facebook page, and I have a video of the night when they when they uh, uh, they open the museum back up. By the way, I just for everybody listening, I, I don't know if your page is your page public, Doug. My Facebook page, yeah. Okay, so for anybody listening, follow Doug's Facebook page because you know, again, Doug, I don't know if you do this on purpose or not, but like, you know, once every other week, you'll be like, oh, I found this in the attic, or oh, I found this in the garage, or, oh, I found it in the basement, and you're looking at. By the way, frequently video, like here's me and the Okudas fucking around on the Tribble set, like, and you're literally looking at footage yeah. that you cannot even believe was recorded. But anyway, all right, two last questions. You ready? Yep, I'm ready. What is your least favorite thing you've designed during your Star Trek tenure where if you could literally go back in time and take it, you would. I, you know, I, there isn't a hell of a lot. I mean, there were a couple of backlit graphics that I did that when I saw the day, I was like, oh, it looks kind of like vaudeville. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, I had so much fun. I, I mean, of course, if someone asks if there's anything that, you're not happy with, you say, well, I mean, ultimately, as an artist, you're not really happy with anything, you know, that's how you make it better and better. You, you, you work on it until there's no more time, you know, or, or you figure out how much time you do have and you try to do the best job. I mean, there's, there's, there's plenty of things where you wish you could have put more time into it, but, you know. All right, that's fair. And then what is, you can only pick one thing. What is your favorite thing you've designed in your entire Star Trek run? 
see, that's really hard. I mean, to say, well, getting to design several enterprises is, you know, that's really up there with an Academy Award for me, you know, that, I mean, if you had told me when I was 13 years old that I was going to get to design an enterprise, that's just crazy. I mean, I, that sometimes I think that maybe I'm dead, you know, dying, bleeding out on the side of the road somewhere, you know, and you, you know, how your brain gives you everything you wanted, <laughs> you know, all, how could these great things have happened? I mean, it's crazy. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, Battlestar Galactica too. I mean, if it, yeah, I, I was so, of course I was really sorry to see, uh, you know, Enterprise canceled when it was just starting to pick up, I thought. But if it hadn't been canceled, I wouldn't have ended up on Battlestar with Gary, Gary Hutzel. And then there wouldn't have been Emmys, you know? So I felt like maybe it got canceled so I could go do this. Sorry, everybody else. <laughs> you know, we knew there was something wrong when a, a group of people came in the art department with tape measures. Oh and my they were gosh. measuring and we're like, uh-oh. <laughs> We knew we were in trouble at that point. We, you know, I we found out on the internet the show was canceled. They didn't tell us. Yeah. Rick Berman had a great line about that, where he was in a he was he knew. I said to him, "At what point did you know the show was definitely getting canceled?" And he said, "He was pitching the new executive that was assigned to season four, and he was like, and then we're going to be outside on the hull, and we're going to be shooting at each other, and then this." And then that, and then this, and then that. What do you think? And the executive was like, I love it. I'm just curious. What's a hull? <laughs> but anyway, Doug, is there anything you want to plug? Plug? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, of course, I'm plugging Orville because I was on season three and they raised the bar. I heard. Yeah, we heard. We heard. They did some big stuff. Uh, that I was really proud to have been a part of, you know. Um, I, I was in there as a graphic designer. That I started off as a graphic designer, but you know that was one of those situations where the production designer and the art director, who I love them, uh, didn't really know anything about me, you know. Uh, someone recommended me, and uh, to do graphics, I came on to do graphics. I ha I hated the graphics on the show. First of all, they didn't look like they made any sense to me, but once you get in there and they find out, well, you know, I could do an animation for you of that if you want, you know, or I could build a prop or once they find out you could do other things, you end up doing other things, you know, because the, the, the illustrator on the show, maybe he's too busy and they go, well, you know, he's, he actually can do that type of stuff. So I got to do a lot of fun things. I'll tell you a story. When I was doing panels, now I didn't do the animations. That's another company. I'm not crazy about those. But I did a lot of really nice panels. I started working out how things worked. And I started putting down, like we did on Star Trek, that this was some kind of, you know, uh, you know, a flow sensor. I'm not saying that's what it was, but you know, where you would, if you look at the Star Trek graphics, you could actually go, okay, this shows how many photon torpedoes we still have, and the warp core travels this way. And I started doing that on the uh, on the panels, and uh, they didn't want me doing that. They said they didn't want anything tied down. Where on Star Trek they liked that, 
that we, we filled out the tech. And the writers looked at it and went, hey, that's really cool. And they would use that to spin off into something else. On Orville, I was, the order came down that I could only use numbers. They didn't want me defining what anything was, which is kind of a disappointment for me, but that's okay. You know, um, I had a great time on the show. It was another family. I've had so many families, you know, I've been really lucky. I've gone from one amazing family to the next. So Orville, there's some awesome stuff in Orville this season. So I'm pushing that and I'm, I'm pushing uh, Picard season two and three because I'm seeing stuff that makes me happy. You know, I'm not just talking ship designs. You know, I told you Dave Blass, production designer is awesome and appreciates and knows where the show has been before. You know, something doesn't work with what came before. He's not happy about that. I think that sometimes you'll get designers in there. You might get a production, and this happens a lot, uh, that they, they want to make it their own. You know, I want to put my spin on this. I'm not really interested in what they did before. They did that already. Let's do something else. Sorry, Doug. I hear like music or something. Anybody hear that? I got workmen in the kitchen. Oh, wow. We have not heard them until right now. But finish what you were saying. Sorry. You know, you'll get, you will get, and there's nothing wrong with this. I totally understand someone who comes in on something long established and says, it's time to shake it up. But you see, Star Trek's a period piece. It's important that all of these threads continue through. Now, if you have a producer who doesn't really understand that, and then you get a production designer who says, I want to make it mine you'll end up seeing stuff that seems to be out of order or doesn't really work with what came before, or I don't see the connection, which is amazing to me because that's half of what is wonderful about Star Trek. People feel like they're part of this club. They understand it all the way back to the beginning and how it got to be where it is. So, and, and that's gonna happen. And then the other thing is that you get a production designer who's maybe you know never done, never watched Star Trek, don't know who worked on it before. That's not part of their, they're gonna hire people on the show that they know from the previous jobs that they like. That's not so great for Star Trek, in my opinion. What you want is someone who understands where it came from, where it's going. You know, if you, if you did, a, if you're doing a historical drama, you can't change everything because you want to shake it up. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's kind of crazy. The same rules need to apply to Star Trek, I think, to really get all your fans. You could be missing out on the magic that makes it last for so long. Well, that is very true, and that is very beautiful. And I think that's the perfect, absolutely perfect note to end on. I mean, that is, that is, a, that is I never thought of it that way, even though it's been in front of my face for 35, 40 years. That's beautiful. Doug, thank you so much for doing the show. Sound smart. Well, I don't think we'd uh, be here right now, would you, if you weren't? I, I think you would have been found out 89 jobs ago. But thank you. Tenudos, you good? good. Yeah, just thank th you. thanks, Doug. I, I got I to meet you guys. Yeah, finally get to see each other face to face. I, thanks for everything. I mean, not just what you do on Star Trek, but just... Um, the, you know, on the screen, just the books, the the calendars, the you know, the the even the even the 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 love affair you share with the wife on Facebook. It's beautiful, and uh, and she's the real chef of. By the way, we consider her the real yeah, chef of Enterprise. She yeah, she because is because she was on Enterprise. Yeah. You know what happened was that um, we never had much food on Star Trek, but 
but they decided they, they wanted to, they used to do plot exposition in the turbo lift. That's what the turbo lift was for, to fill people in on your way to wherever you're going, you know? And they said, let's get away from that. Uh, why don't we do like they did say, like in Bonanza, where the family would sit around the table and they would talk about what's going on out there at the, you know, the, at the, you know, the, the silver mine and, you know, uh, so they decided they were going to have more meals in the captain's, you know, with T'Pol and Trip, and uh, and so now there was food in almost every episode, and it wasn't alien food, you know, although there was sometimes alien food, and uh, a Bink, Craig Binkley, who was the prop guy, was in charge of getting the food stylist, and uh, I, I don't know what it was, but you know. He, he was tearing his hair out and I'm like, what's the matter, Bink, Binky boy? And he says, you know, I don't know what it is, but all these food stylists, they just can't figure out how to be somewhere on time and they don't give you what you want. And I just don't understand it. And I said, you know what, Bink, have I got somebody for you? And I told him about Dorothy, who, you know, has always been an amazing, amazing cook. I don't, I almost have to call her a chef. I'm telling you, Bink, uh, blood's thicker than water. And that if, you know, Dorothy's always wanted to do this. If you were to use Dorothy, I guarantee you that she would rather die than let you down or me down. And so he called Dorothy in and Dorothy took over. And, you know, of course, art department got all the leftover food. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I've got, I've got a, they love the food that she made so much that they were cleaning their plates after every take. They were eating everything. And then they, that means they would have to reset all the plates for the, to redo the shot, you know? And so uh, they, Dorothy came up with the idea, why don't I bring them a plate while they're still in their trailer and let them eat? Then by the time they come on stage, they'll already be full, you know, which actually, which worked. But I've got a, I've got a copy of a daily that's on my Vimeo page, where uh, Mayweather and um, oh, what's his name? The dark, the Brit guy. Uh, Mal Malcolm. Oh, Malcolm. Malcolm. They're eating, and it's Malcolm's turn to to talk. Instead, he's like, <laughs> you can hear the food being sucked into his mouth, and and uh, Mayweather jumps up and goes, "You are such an idiot!" It it is, and he's like, "This, you know." <laughs> It's so funny. He couldn't complete his lines because he, he was having too much fun eating. But uh, yeah, so Dorothy was the, uh, she was the chef on the show. And so she was up there every week, you know, bringing food. And we always got all the leftovers. There's an episode where, you know, a micrometeorite uh, punctures a travel pod, not a travel pod, but one of the pods and air's leaking out. And they used some of they were. They had uh, prepackaged meatloaf, ready-to-eat meals, Starfleet, and we had meatloaf in there that Dorothy made. And they used the meatloaf to plug the hole. <laughs> and um, fans went crazy, ripping that. What a dumb idea! How stupid is that? And Mike actually Okuda explained how yes, it could work. By the size of the hole and the air pressure, you could plug the hole with meatloaf, and that probably would freeze on the outside too. I, listen, I had fans going after me once on first contact, going, what is it? You people are idiots. You know, 
you have a supersonic missile that has rivets all over it. I mean, don't you do any research? And I'm like, and I had this guy, you know, it was like watching an animal step into a trap. I'm going to do <laughs> that was a real supersonic missile. We just put a nose cone on it. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I understand going part of the sport is picking out the mistakes. And as long as I think that's great. If you're having fun picking out all our mistakes, I think that's awesome. And continue to have a good time. I think it's great. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Doug. Tenudos, blast as always. Thank Thank you, everybody who's been listening. And all drive systems are standing by. The Center Seat After Show is an Acellcast original and produced by Brian Volk-Weiss, Mary Jo Tenuto, John Tenuto, Brian Adams, Matt Kravitsky, and Richard Myrick. Thank you for listening. things is as usual the skull island audience is the greatest audience in the world good night everybody <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>